This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we've packed a number of shows together to give you some highlights. I know you're going to enjoy the show. Thank you for being with us today. Serena, welcome to the show. You have some skills that I bet our listeners are are not as familiar with or, or different options you know, for investing that are at least one specifically that we're going to dive into that that I bet they don't know is out there and you've become an expert in this and, and been very successful. So I want to jump in, but man, who is Serena and welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and let's jump in there, a little bit of background and, and then let's dive into how you got into private lending, uh, you know, and kind of your path to there. Uh, but then, man, what that could do for uh, other investors, right? It, it's just exposing them to this this platform. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I had my own brand experience agency for 18 years, and I actually sold that just at the beginning of last year. I had tried to sell it just before COVID. No one knew COVID was coming. So it was very horrible timing. Um, I listed it for sale and we went into lockdown about two weeks later. So I kept the business going over the span of a couple of years and finally sold it last year just so that I could focus on my family and you know, go into real estate full time. And as you mentioned, I've done a lot of private lending. So I also had many other sources of income to depend on that I kind of, um, you know, found my path to that through a client actually that I was staffing events for in Texas and Florida. And they have um, kind of like a real estate education company. So they teach a lot of beginner investors, all the different concepts associated with real estate investing. And I happened to talk to a girlfriend of mine about it and she has her own hair salon. And she's like, you know what? I got introduced you to my mortgage broker. I do private lending with him. And I actually make more money doing that than I do from my business. And at this point in time, you know, I was obviously getting into all of this stuff, but I was also looking to start a family. So I wanted to decrease my dependency on income from my business so that when I took a step back, you know, I was worried would sales go down? Like, you know, I just wanted to leave as much money as I could in the company. So I started working with her her mortgage broker and also another one that I did some syndicated mortgages with. And in the first year, I was able to cut my pay in half and then introduce COVID. <laughs> so I didn't want to take any money out of my business at all. So I was able to dial up the private lending that I was doing. And then at the beginning of last year, like very significantly scaled it. Um, you know, I would have been doing probably between three to six deals a year. And I think last year I did 26. So I've just now confirmed, I think I signed like my 59th deal in the last couple of weeks. So I just keep the money moving like as as things are coming to an end. Wow. Uh, 26 deals last year. Uh, that's a lot. Right. Uh, and I see, uh, you know, I, I guess, uh, you know, let's walk through, uh, I, why don't we a little more elementary approach for just a moment, you know, I mean, what is private lending and, and what is this, you know, how could our investors who are listening even consider thinking about doing something like that? Yeah. So I, from a, a mortgage broker's perspective, um, in some instances, there could be people that need to pay off a line of credit before their mortgage closes or something like that. So for the broker that I was working with, sometimes it could be you know, short-term business loan for someone, someone that needed these other short-term loans. So say, for example, they've got 20 grand on their line of credit. They need a two-week bridge loan before their mortgage closes. So they might be willing to spend $2,000 to wipe that clean so that their mortgage can close. So you're kind of fulfilling that need for them. Or like I said, it could be a business owner that maybe they need money for whatever period of time. So some of those loans have been principal and interest. So one of my first deals was for $45,000. It was 20% interest. So I got a, a ratio of the payment towards the principal and then the interest monthly over the span of two years. Um, you know, in most instances, they even paid it off early because they don't want to be paying that high interest 
longer than they have to. Um, and then in some cases, they could also be interest only loans. So that would be common with like land developers, people that are renovating single family or multifamily properties. And then when the property refinances, they pay back their investors and then take out the additional money in terms of equity as as profit for themselves. So it varies in terms of the needs that people may have. And like I said, I just try to work with as many people as possible to kind of insulate uh, my risk in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to get to like the different types of maybe asset classes, things that you're lending towards. Or let's just do that now. What are what does it normally look like? Uh, and then, you know, how do these people find you? But, uh, you know, go into what they're doing as well. Yeah. So, I mean, everyone's risk tolerance is different. Um, the majority of what I've done is unsecured private lending. So that would make a lot of people very nervous. Um, that being said, there's almost always real estate involved. So there is a level of tangibility. And most of the agreements that I have still have a property reflected in the agreement. So while you may not be registered on title, like a first position mortgage, there's still a property usually reflected in that agreement. So I feel like if push came to shove, that's usually what you'll do. But then I'll take added measures to verify their identity, that they're on title, the property that's listed, um, credit checks, make sure if they're renovating, they have builder's insurance, and there's other things that I'll do and you know, often have a, a lot of trusted referrals. So I'm like in the most risky boat because I'm chasing the the interest. You know, Initially, I was loaning out when I had 3% on my HELOC. Now it's 7%. So I want to have those 20% returns because you need to make that spread. Um, other options for people could be like a first position mortgage, or they could do something like an equity partner, whether it's joint venturing on a project where they're an actual shareholder in, in the property. Um, and sometimes you'll see situations where it's like a GPLP structure. So the working partner is a general partner and you'll come in as a limited partner. So you're shielded from risk. And I have a couple of those as well. And, um, you know, they're, they're fairly common. They're more complex and expensive to set up, but they're, you know, there are some of those floating out there as well. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, uh, some investors, I'm sure they're listening, like, why, why would I become a private lender versus just investing in a syndication, you know, or being more mm -hmm. passive? Yeah. So I guess it depends on, like I said, your risk tolerance plays into it. So a lot of right. first position mortgages, what I've seen, they'll be like 10 to 13% in terms of interest. The unsecured private lending, more like 14 to 20%. So again, if you're just coming in with cash, maybe you want to make sure like you've got 100% security and stuff like that. Um, like I said, I just try to work with a lot of different people and yeah. like touch wood. <laughs> the only thing that's really gone a little bit wrong is the syndicated mortgages that I invested with. And at the time I did three and they were laddered with a 12 month, 18 month and 24 month term. And the issue is that it's been very significantly delayed. So in this instance, a mortgage brokerage um, kind of misrepresented themselves in some ways. Like I thought that they were brokering deals for other borrowers. And it turns out that they actually had some of their own deals in the pot, some were land development. And basically one and a half of those deals has now gone on for five years. Um, they are still paying the front end interest, but they've even said in the most recent update, they might need two more years. So what should have been like an 18 month term could go to seven years. So for me, all the other private lending I've done paid off what I put into that. But you could imagine if someone had just done that, you know, no one knew COVID was coming. So what if they needed that money back, right? So right. a delay like that could have been a lot more challenging for some people compared to what I experienced. But my learning from that was not to put as much money into a deal because I did about 335000 between three deals then. Now I don't do more than 50000 a deal. And it also had split interest. So it was 15%, half of it's paid up front, half at the back end, whenever that back end occurs. Um, and now, 
you know, they've said there's a possibility that backend interest could be compromised because it's gone on for so long. So I generally don't touch anything that has that kind of a split interest circumstance anymore. Speak to um, maybe some of the the risks that you know the the investor wouldn't even know to ask or think through, right? Uh, just to understand if it's if it fits their risk tolerance. Yeah, I mean, in this instance, they had in their paperwork that they could extend for six months twice. Um, and as it turns out, as long as they're paying that front end interest, like it could go on and on and on. And as I've also learned in a GPLP situation, the same thing, like they could put a window on it, but because of that specific arrangement, it's not like there's a, there should be a defined end, but it could go on longer and there's nothing the LP could do in that circumstance. I think if you really want out, the GP might be able to replace you, but at the end of the day, there is that chance that things can go on longer than anticipated. So I think that's why I've liked some of the general security agreements. Like it's a very specific fixed date. Um, in some cases, the borrowers have asked, you know, do you want to keep your money in and roll it over to another term or do you want to be paid out? So if you want to be paid out, they'll usually just replace you. They're not just going to kind of hold you hostage in the deal. So I think that's, you know, one of the elements, I think obviously in the the worst case scenario, you can always lose your money. Um, I did talk to an investor that had put $100,000 into a deal with an actual like real estate investing coach that she had, and the bank foreclosed on the property. And even though there should have been enough equity to pay her out, the bank charged like $250,000 in fees because it had to foreclose and she wasn't able to get her money out. So even though there was a property, there should have been that equity. There was like, you know, that situation. And I think she did try to pursue him legally, but because he has a lot of different corporations set up and stuff like that, she was never able to recover it. So I think, you know, it's wise never to invest more money than you're willing to lose. And just, like I said, do smaller amounts if you can and just work with with more. So in most instances, minimums are 50, some are 25, you know, some could even be lower. It just really depends on who you're working with. Speak to uh, analyzing the opportunities uh, and how they find you. Yeah. Well, I mean, initially I was proactively trying to find those opportunities. So I was introduced to a lot of people and I would just feel them out in a lot of ways. Like they're obviously recommended, but what are their terms? How are they explaining things? Like, am I comfortable with the way that they're going to communicate with investors? Some of them will provide updates on like private groups for their investors, showing progress of those properties and stuff like that. So you can feel confident knowing like they're actually doing the work. They're not just taking your money and, and who knows. Um, so I think that played into some of that. And again, um, I would look them up to make sure that they're on title in some instances. So I get their identification, double check. In some cases, like I even saw an extra person on title. So I'd ask that that person be added to the agreement. So there could be things like that. It's always good practice to run credit checks, get copies of insurance and stuff like that. So it just depends on who they are and what they're doing with the money. But now I think because I have been on different podcasts talking about these opportunities, now it's, you know, more and more people have, have come to me just presenting those opportunities. And that way, in some instances, I can share those with other people that are looking for opportunities that may not be in these investing communities and stuff like that. What's your normal, I guess, your comfort level around the terms that you're offering, you know, and length length of the of the investment? Yeah, I would say a year is generally my preference, just because again, life can happen and change, right? So I don't want to commit to something that could be like three years or five years, or I even saw one recently that was for 10 years. And I was like, oh, like <laughs> it's so much that can happen in 10 years. So I just feel like that was a little too long. And I understand why it was set up that way. Um, like it was more of a buy and hold strategy with equity partners, but it just, to me, that was just too long. And, and even if you decide that you do stay in for 10 years, I still would want that option that I could exit 
in a year or two and maybe roll it over continually rather than be just locked into something like that. So that's my personal preference, but it just depends on on what somebody wants. Um, and then now a lot of people, at least here in Canada, are coming up with mutual fund trusts. So those are, you know, set up where it's like groups of properties and they can also take registered funds. So for us, RSPs, TFSAs and stuff like that. So you can just find higher yield opportunities that could be in the range of 22, 26, 30%. And you're kind of putting that into your registered funds for more of like a long-term savings. We are all thinking about the future, right? And hopefully you're, you are thinking about many years from now, not just six months from now, and what your finances look like. Uh, I mean, that that word tax always comes up in our conversations at times, or probably not often enough as far as planning and being really good at planning. Uh, but our guest today has, has some strategies that I think all of us need to be aware of. And she's re- written a book recently that's going to help us to better understand those things. Uh, welcome back to the show, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. Stephanie, give the you know, update the listeners a little bit about who you are, your background, your wealth strategist, author, or uh, you know, numerous things that you've done that's helped you to get to where you're at now to help us, you know, and others uh, with building wealth and doing it well and tactfully. But tell them a little more about your background. Yeah, well, I start well. I was an insurance agent uh, for about 16 years, um, and. But while in about 2016, I started doing real estate syndications and I was sort of the partner in the group that raised the money. So I dealt with a lot of wealthy investors and got to know them pretty well. We have about 300 million of assets under management and I'm now sort of transitioning into this, I guess, second phase of my career where I've written a book um, to kind of make people aware of what the wealthy are doing with their money, because it's very different than what we're doing with our money. Yeah. So I wrote this book and now I'm just trying to get out and, and talk to people about some some strategies that they might not be aware of. Yeah. Well, let's dive into a few of those those strategies, right? I'm sure there's many myths that come along with, you know, wealth building as well. Why don't you why don't we talk about some of the myths and we'll dive into some of the specific strategies as well? Well, I think a really important myth that I address a lot is that you need to invest in high people say, oh, well, the person got wealthy because they invested in very high risk investments. And that's why they got all their money. But actually, nothing could be further from the truth. And I'm sure you're aware of that too, dealing with investors is the wealthy ones are very, very concerned with the risks and understanding everything that's involved with an investment. They do that with real estate. They do that with everything. They try to actually have an asymmetric return really is more um, realistic to what an investor wants. They want a very large return for a very small amount of of their money that they put in. And um, that that is a big part of it. I know part of my book, I go into just what losses, just plain old losses do to your portfolio. And maybe a lot of people don't really think about that, but that that, that is super impactful when you're, you know, let's say the stock market last year went down 25%. Well, they say, well, it'll, you know, I'll just need another 
for the stock market to go up 25% this year. That's actually not true. They need a return of 50% just to get them back to normal. And that can take years and years and years. Yeah. Wow. Uh, That's probably not good news. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For most. Uh, But yeah, you know, often we do believe it has to be something high risk to get the high uh, return. Uh, And uh, and I think the uh, people who are, they become wealthy, right? It's because they have taken the time to analyze those risks and the returns and, you know, in in their specific portfolio, maybe. Uh, Is there another myth maybe we we could discuss uh, before we dive into a, a strategy? Knowing, I guess, what what losses do to your portfolio. And actually, not only that, but probably a little bit more, I dive pretty in depth about a for, the 401k uh, and just being aware of what fees do to your uh, your returns as well. Because I think I... It's in my book, but I believe it's that 80 to 90% of people don't even know they're being charged fees on their 401ks. And I go through like a step-by-step of three people um, and the fees are 1% for one person, 2% for the other person, 3% for, for the final person and just show what that looks like over time. And it is hugely and crazy of of what those compounding fees do to um, the returns and what they think they'll be getting out of their 401k. So I just try to make people aware of what those fees are. And if they want to stay in the 401k, what they can do to, you know, get into low, low risk without fees being being assessed to them. Yeah, very low fees anyways. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that 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 higher percentage wouldn't don't even know that they're being charged a fee, um, and and then you don't really think about how that affects your long term, right? Um, so, all right, let's get into some strategies. Uh, I know uh, you know the tax treatment diversification. That's one uh, maybe, but is that a strategy that that we should dive into right now, or what would be the, the maybe top strategy that we you would want to highlight? Well, I think it's really important. And again, we we both have seen this with with real estate is that real estate is more a tax advantage product. So people really get some great tax advantages from working with uh, real estate. But then there's there is the 401k, which by and large, everyone, most everyone does. And that's tax deferment, you know. And what I'm bringing to light is that it's really important to have your money in a few different buckets, maybe a little bit in the tax advantage, which is real estate, tax deferment, which is your 401k. But tax-free bucket is usually something that is not utilized at all um, because really people think the only way that they can take advantage of that is through a Roth. IRA or 401k, which they have to, you know, usually it excludes people that make higher incomes, like a hundred thousand or more. But um, what I found is that there are some strategies that the wealthy use to kind of get around that and be able to have a lot of tax-free income when they retire. Maybe give us an example or let's think through that a little bit. 
the product that I'm talking about is actually it's a premium finance life insurance. Now everybody freaks out when they hear the word life insurance. Um, but actually, this is a very, very most people have never heard of this, even agents that are in the financial space. This has really been utilized by people that make 25 million or more for years. And it it functions very much like a real estate product in that you go in and the bank will pay, you know, probably uh, 80, 75 to 80% of the premium on this policy. And then you leverage into this large investment with only 20 to 25% of a down payment. And then this policy grows the way that it grows is that it is linked to the stock market and that it only takes the ups, but it will, it doesn't take, if there's a loss like last year, if it's a 25% loss, they get a zero. You just supplying zero. And I could go into more detail about how, how the insurance company is able to do that. Um, but Basically, think of it as a way, say you leverage into a million dollar real estate product, you put $200,000 down. Now say that uh, real estate goes up 8% in the year, you don't make 8% on your 200,000, you make 8% on the million dollars, which is exactly how this product works except it is not real estate. So you don't have to worry about any kind of losses that would be associated or risks associated with the real estate, if that makes sense. Yeah. And how would somebody uh, like learn about something like that or even start you know, using a, a platform like that? Unfortunately, there isn't a lot of information about this product because it has been reserved for the extremely wealthy. You can contact me you know, or you can, you know, look around on the internet. There's not, like I said, a great deal of information. It's called premium financed insurance. And uh, what they have opened this product up in the last few years to accredited investors. So if you can prove that, you know, you have a net worth of a million dollars, this is definitely a cool strategy to look into. What's the risk for that? The risks are if, say, the market doesn't go up, like if we had like 10 years of of 0% returns, uh, which has never happened, um, you know, that could be something. Um, also, interest rates do affect this product. Well, it's just like a loan, um, like anything else for real estate. So we try to get them in the best loan possible, lock them in for a few years. But this is a, a different product in the sense that we're always we're looking at it on a on an annual basis to be sure that yes, they are in the right loan, the lowest loan they can get, and let's see what did the market do this year. Um, our track record for the past 10 years is um, 9.53% returns on this product every year. But the key is, is that when you leverage the money in, you leverage about a million dollars in from the bank, it grows like gangbusters. And then um, the person is able to get the loan out or the 
they're able to get money out when they retire tax-free, which is very significant because the money grows tax-free while in the product and then it's distributed tax-free. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today.